taking time for a little heart over the holidays, maybe a lot of heart, with some help from Bill Shutt. Welcome to Textonation. I'm Fred Fishkin, and with us is American Museum of Natural History zoologist and author of a new book called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart, Bill Shutt. Thanks for taking the time, Bill. My pleasure to be here. Thanks, Fred. Well, thank you. Tell us uh, about the book, a pun might be, why is it in circulation? Um, geez, why is it in circulation? Because Algonquin is a really good publishing company and they, uh, <laughs> they do a good job of, of, of getting the book out there. Um, but uh, seriously, um, my, last, my last book was on cannibalism and it, and it did really well. And, and I'm a zoologist and I, I looked, you know, I, I think I found a niche. My first book was on blood feeding creatures. Um, kind of strange, uh, complex topics that are, uh, are often uh, misrepresented and misunderstood. And, um, and after cannibalism, I, I, you know, I had a list of books that I, topics that I, I, I potentially wanted to work on. And my, my editors at Algonquin and, and my, my agent, Jillian McKenzie, suggested that I look for something a little bit more mainstream. And the list that they gave me had had the heart on it, and I, I immediately thought, no way, this is not the type of book that I, you know, it's probably everything's got to have been done before. Um, so many experts on the heart, it's so important. And but when I started to to look into it a bit, I realized that there was there was certainly uh, the, the there was space there for the type of book that I like to write, which is uh, move through the animal kingdom, pick interesting examples, and it's not just the heart; it's the circulatory system too as well and 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 blood um and and then get into the history of uh, uh, of our our knowledge of of a system and in this case the circulatory system look at um at, at some of the ancient practices and and medieval practices which which to me blew me away as far as you know satisfying my uh, my my desire to to cover weird topics um in order to get interesting points across uh, that, you, you know, if, if try to keep it entertaining, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and so, um, and then to look into the future of cardiac medicine, which, and there's all sorts of really exciting things going on there. But, but I'd like to have a dollar for every time somebody said to me, you know, you know, I studied vampire bats for 25 years. How does that help my grandmother live another five years? And, and in this case, I, I mean, I really felt that this was, um, you know, this was one of the first times where I could go in and, and the animals that I picked just happened to have this, uh, a lot of clinical relevance. Uh, and, and so, and, and they had really interesting circulatory systems. And, and, and so I found this, uh, I found a way to bring some of the topics even more relevance than, than I had in books like cannibalism or, or, or blood feeding. Well, tell us about some of the, you take us on a journey here. So tell us about some of the more interesting hearts that you found. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, well, the book starts off with uh, with a with a story that 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 started off rather tragic. And and my friends at the Royal Ontario Museum received a phone calls in in 2014, uh, saying that reporting that uh, nine blue whales had died uh, on the ice. They got caught up in ice flows in off the coast of Newfoundland, and and that was um, you know that was a large that was a good percentage of the blue whales that lived in that region. So so that was you know that was bad news. Usually though, when blue whales die, they sink, and so these researchers and Mark Engstrom is a, is is one of the world's top 
scientists at the, you know, he's at the ROM um, about whale biology. But, and he'd been asked this question time and time again, what's the largest heart in the world? Uh, blue whale heart. Uh, how big is it? The uh, size of a sedan. But he really didn't know because they did not have access to the to the to these organs you know in the old days when they threw harpoons at whales they called the whales that that, that would float after they got killed the right whales and the blue whales were never the right whales because not only were they really fast but they sank so here was an opportunity where three of the whales did not sink and two of them washed ashore in these small fishing villages in newfoundland and so they figured all right well it's it's now or never so they took up a crew, construction equipment. We're talking about a 90-ton animal uh, that had washed up. And, you know, the populace was afraid it was going to explode. If you go online, you can find all of these uh, videos of, uh, of, of exploding whales. And so, uh, so, so they were frightened because this thing had, had come ashore right in front of the only restaurant in town. Uh, and, and so, um, and so Dr. Engstrom tried to assure them that he believed that the blue whale would just sort of deflate like a giant balloon unless people jumped on top of it or stabbed it. And, and that's what it did. But so make a long story short, they were able to get inside this whale. They had four people inside, you know, um, cutting the heart free and then pushing it out between ribs. And, and, and when they got it out, and when I looked at the pictures, it didn't look like a mammal heart to me. It, it, you know, it looked like a 400 pound soup dumpling. It was just this kind of big blob. So there were all of these really interesting facts that, that they just didn't know about, about this type of heart. And, and the other thing, all right, so, so they, they, over a five year period, they preserved it. So they froze it first and then they had to clean it and then they had to uh, preserve it in formalin. So, you know, we were always worried about getting a little bit of formaldehyde splashed on us when we were working in labs. These guys were working with thousands of gallons of this stuff. They were worried about falling into vats full of it. So they sent the whale heart to Germany and it was plastinated there. If you've ever seen the bodies exhibits where it's, you know, you've got this guy who's uh, dribbling a basketball and it looks normal, except he has no skin uh, and he's now made of plastic. They did this to the blue whale heart, um, sent it back. Five years later, they put it on display and, and they still noticed that there were a lot of things that they, that they just did not, they didn't expect. It was a lot smaller than they thought it was going to be. It was weight. It came in at about 380 pounds. And, and if you were to have, for example, a, a 90 ton hummingbird laying next to that blue whale and you were to get at its heart, it would have been eight times larger. And, and so they wondered why this was so. And they sort of hypothesized that, that hummingbirds with their really high metabolic rate and they're beating their wings at 80 times per second uh, and in order to get blood to those muscles, the wing muscles, they've got an incredibly high heart rate. Their heart rate can be 1,260 beats per minute, which is 10 times higher than, than, than we would ever want our heart to, to beat. And so the only, and, and we think that's probably about the maximum that this structure can, can, can fill and then empty 1,260 times per, per minute. So that's about the limit. Now, the only other way to get more blood to those wing muscles is to have a larger heart. Now, um, be because of these metabolic demands that, 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 that hummingbirds and little shrews, you know, little mousy looking insectivores that they have. Blue whale, on the other hand, heartbeats maybe 
15, 20 times a minute. Uh, and so it doesn't have those types of metabolic requirements. And the soup dumpling look, the fact that this thing collapses, we think has to do with the fact that they go on these deep dives. And when they do, their heart only beats maybe two, three times per minute. So rather than, rather than withstanding the pressures of a deep dive, they just allow their hearts to collapse. So, you know, they're still looking at, 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 to, to answer questions that they have about this heart. And, and, you know, there are several blood vessels that they're not quite sure what they do. You know, this is a, the largest mammal in the world, and we're learning all of these interesting things from it. So that was, you know, that's how I started the book out. And, and they're all psyched now because they've got another large whale heart, a relative, not a blue whale, uh, that they can make comparisons to, which is, you know, when you're studying anatomy, uh, one of the best ways to do that is to, is, is to compare um, species that are closely related, but, but different and may have different behaviors and, and, and maybe evolved differently. Uh, so they're all excited to be able to make these comparisons between two large whale hearts. It's not, it's not a heart, but the, the, the blue whale, I guess, is a big part of, of, of your home base there at the American Museum of Natural History. Oh, yeah. A huge blue whale on the, hanging from the ceiling, right? Oh, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Um, the, they're at the ROM, they're actually, they actually have that heart out now, now until March. They, when I went up there, they had put it in storage. They had to pull this thing out and decrate it for my, my artist and I to, to, to examine, uh, but it's back out now. If anybody goes, gets up to, uh, to Toronto, to the Royal Ontario museum, and it'll be out until, um, until March, I believe March, 2022. Yeah. But every time I walk in the door at the museum of natural history, I, I pretty much see that spectacular model. So big and small, you mentioned the hummingbirds and, and their unusually large hearts for, for their size. Any more interesting species with the oh, unusual hearts? Oh, sure. Um, as far as uh, applicability to, to, uh, to, to modern medicine, the one that is the most fascinating to me or right up there um, uh, is the zebrafish, the common zebrafish that you find in aquaria. And, and this is an animal who, um, everybody's seen this, it's about uh, you know, an inch or so, and it's got those horizontal black and white stripes. And I mean, we had them as kids. And, and it's a very common uh, fish for, for, for tropical aquariums. But these are, are animals who have become very, very important in medical research for a, for a host of reasons. For, for, for one, they're genetically about 70, 72% identical to humans. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of similarity. And, and, and while we're on that topic, there's a lot of similarity in all of the hearts and circulatory systems of vertebrates, animals with backbones, fish, amphibians, um, reptiles, mammals, and birds. Um, and, and we think that these similarities, and, and uh, yeah, there are differences. There are two chambers hearts in, in, in fish and four chambers in mammals. Um, but we think these similarities um, are, are there because all of these um, uh, circulatory systems evolved from one common ancestor. If you look in the invertebrates, if you look at insects and mollusks and, and uh, it, you know, just go down through the line, you find that there are tremendous differences in how you circulate this fluid around the body to carry oxygen and, and, and get rid of carbon dioxide and waste and deliver nutrients. And that's because we think that these systems in the invertebrates evolved many times. 
So getting back to the um, to the zebrafish, if you were to clip away as 20% of the heart of a zebrafish, that heart would repair itself very quickly. And you'd have a completely functional heart within a week or two. And, and you know, that is, that is really, really strange. Um, now, if you look at the human side of that, you know, and it, since we've sort of outlawed gladiatorial combat, we're not chopping off 20% of each other's hearts that often anymore. But, but if you damage the heart, and, and one of the key ways that that happens is if you have a blockage in a coronary vessel, a coronary artery, that's one of the four coronary vessels that's delivering oxygenated blood to the heart tissue itself. And if you block that, whether it's a blockage or it's uh, atherosclerosis or uh, the downstream from that blockage, those tissues, those cells are going to be starved for oxygen and nutrients. And if that blood flow is cut off long enough, that tissue will die. And when it comes back, Unlike the zebrafish, it's more or less scar tissue. It's not contractile. It's not muscle tissue. So what is it about the zebra heart that allows it to repair itself on an, at, at an amazing level, but the human heart can't repair um, its own tissues after it's been damaged? And so there's a real interest in that in, in the zebrafish. And, and even now, you know, breaking news, they found a new um, a new cell type in hearts, and they it, it's called a, a nexus glial cell, and they think that it has something to do with uh, initiating or and regulating the heartbeat. You know, we have these pacemakers in inside of our hearts that that enable our heart to beat uh, and regulate the speed of, of that it beats. And they've now discovered a, and this was first discovered in zebrafish. Then they found it in mammals. Now they found it in humans, the cell that they never knew existed before. And they're trying to figure out what it does. They just know that in zebrafish, if we remove this, um, these cells, um, that the heart beats faster. So it has some type of a regulatory function. And, and, and so, so that, that's what I found to be surprisingly interesting is that it, when, when I wrote this book was that the animals that I was, that, that, I, that, that turned out to have kind of cool circulatory systems that, that, that I wanted to spend time going over, that they were, you know, there were researchers who were doing, who were looking at these in, in a very different way from, from, you know, just a purely so sort of zoological, um, uh, um, you know, take on things. So, I mean, it, it just went on and on. The list got longer and longer, you know, is there a possibility that the, the the human heart could be engineered from from the zebrafish to repair itself? Well, I, I mean, what what they're trying to do is figure out what it is. What what is it about the the um, the the zebrafish heart? And 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 what they've got so far is that that the cells, the mature cells that in humans normally don't reproduce anymore, um, that these cells. The adjacent that in a, in a zebrafish that are adjacent to that wound, as the wound is repairing itself, that those cells begin to reproduce and produce new muscle tissue. That's something that you don't see in humans. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's there's as I, as I go through in this book, there's just this incredibly interesting list of of um, of of researchers out there who are doing just some wild stuff. Uh, you know, I. I 
there's a real problem in the Everglades, for example, with Burmese pythons. And, and the estimates are that there's a million of them in the Everglades and they eat everything. There's no predators except for the humans that are going in there now and getting paid to, um, uh, to take them out. But these were, these were um, released as pets and they grow huge because there's nothing there to, to, to curtail their, uh, uh, you know, their growth. And they eat every type of animal and bird and, and, and you know, they're eating alligators. Um, but a, a, a researcher by the name of Leslie Leanwand in, at the University of Colorado found out that, so she started to study these things and um, these horrible invasive species down there. And what she found out is that you, everyone's seen boa constrictors and pythons and they eat these huge, you know, they eat things whole. So, the, so they'll eat a small deer and then they won't eat again for six months, eight months. But as soon after they eat, their heart grows 40% in size. And when we hear about enlarged heart, that, that's pathological. It's usually a bad thing. But this is not pathological. This is the equivalent if you were to go on an exercise regime and grow your heart muscle so that, it, so that your heart is stronger. And so what is it about this uh, about boa constrictors, uh, ex excuse me, about pythons. We expect that boas are gonna do the same thing here, but what is it about these pythons that enables them to have healthy heart growth without exercise? And, and can we now figure out what that is and then use it for people who have heart problems that can't have a, a, a regular, a normal exercise regime to make their heart stronger and healthier? So these are the things that 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 I got into in this book, and you know it was um, you know to me to me really uh, one of the most interesting aspects of of writing this was to find all of these incredible instances. Did it get you to doing the work on this? Did it get you to change your diet or exercise regimen with all that that you learned here? Uh, no, my wife has been doing that for for years. So um, yeah, but I but I did. And I'm hoping the cannibalism book didn't get you to change your diet either. No, no, no. I did try some placenta, but that was a one-time thing. For, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's another story. Um, no, but but I did talk to um to to uh, to Patrick. McBride at the University of Wisconsin, who was an expert on, on, on cardiac risk factors and, and, and also an expert on, on, on dealing with um, the aftermath of, of um, when, you, when you have a heart attack or you have some type of cardiac procedure. And so he went through all of these things. Uh, you know, I heard, uh, you know, a good number of them, the good thing, the things that you want to do uh, to try to um, uh, to maximize your, your, your recovery time. And, and so that was interesting. And I spent some time doing that as well. You know, it's all over the internet. And, 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 and what I tried to do here is sort of pull things together and, and then get the backing of, of, of people who, who I trusted uh, that, that I thought were, were really top of the line uh, researchers and then, you know, break it down. I'm not into jargon. Uh, I, this, this is certainly not a textbook. It's not an encyclopedia of, of animal hearts and, um, but I, but I do think that, that if you find an interesting angle, uh, that, that, that you can, that you can get major points across to people about how to, um, you know, how to, how to behave, what, what to do, what not to do. One of the ones that was the most popular was, you know, I spent time talking about if you, um, if, you know, I live in the Northeast and we get a lot of snow, uh, you don't want to eat a lot a big breakfast and, and then go out and shovel snow. 
and 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 people were like, "What? What?" I'm like, "Well, when when you're when you've just eaten, a lot of blood is going to go to your digestive tract to help you digest your Cheerios, and that blood is not going elsewhere um, to places where it 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 would be needed if you were out exercising, especially if you were putting a lot of strain, for example, uh, on your heart and 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 your and your respiratory system." So, um, so, so these are the types of things that, that, that interest me is, and, and the history of it as well was just like blew me away how, you know, 1500 years, things kind of stagnated in the, in the field of medicine. And the way we humans think of our hearts, it's not an organ. It, it's not a, a pump. The, t- the title of the book, it, it is us. It, it symbolizes so much our broken hearts are et cetera, et cetera. And you, you talk about that too. Yeah. Um, so when I wrote a book about cannibalism, I was really interested in the, why do we have this knee-jerk reaction when, uh, when, when I say that word, you have this feeling and this, you know, you're, you're thinking about things automatically. And so when I wrote a, uh, and so, so, so I was, I was going to call the chapter. So when I did the work on that, I was going to call the chapter, blame it on the ancient Greeks. Uh, and then that got changed by my, by my editors, uh, thankfully, I guess. But when, when I started to look at where this idea of cardiocentrism came from, where this idea that the heart was the center of emotion and intellect and the soul and memory, where did that come from? Um, I could have named that chapter, blame it on the ancient Egyptians, because they were the ones um, who, you know, you know, they looked at the heart as incredibly important uh, because it was, it was, it seemed to be alive, it, it moved. If you, uh, it, it responded to stimuli, if you scared someone, it beat faster. Um, and so they thought the heart was really, really important. And, and they thought that it was really the center of what we would consider to be the soul. They didn't think very much of the brain at all. If they mummified you, they would, they'd yank your brain out of your, out of your head with a hook that they shoved up through your nose, and then they just got rid of it. But the heart, they really paid attention to. And because in the afterlife, it had to be weighed against this feather. And, and depending on, if, on, on how that did, you know, you were either going to um, spend the afterlife having a good time uh, or you're going to be eaten by a monster uh, if, if, if the things that you did during your lifetime, you know, you know warranted you to be slaughtered after and, 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 you know, miserable. Um, but they did a lot of research as well, but they got a lot wrong. The, the ancient Egyptians. They thought, for example, that the arterial, the left side of the heart and that whole, uh, all of the arteries were, were, were moving air uh, and that the right side of the heart, which sends blood, um, you know, blood's coming back to the heart from the body. It's got rid of its oxygen, returns to the right side, then it gets pumped to the lungs. Then it comes back to the left side, left side pumps it out to the, to the body. They thought that the right side had blood in it. They thought the left side had air. So there their work, their, their, their um, medical information, the ancient Egyptians, was held in high esteem by the Greeks. And, and, and so the Greeks picked up on all of this and they came up with their own ideas about things like the balancing the four humors, uh, blood being one of them, that there were these four substances in the body that, and, and whether, it was, um, whether it was any type of medical problem or any type of, of, of mental problem, it could be dealt with by balancing these four humors. So this is why they bled you, an, it, because blood happened to be one of the big four, uh, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm being the other three. Uh, and, and black bile, they had a hard time with that because it didn't exist. 
Um, but in any event, at the same time, the, so, so they picked up on this idea of cardiocentrism, the ancient Greeks, and, and the artists now are jumping in. And they're going, oh, the heart is the center and it's the place where the soul is and resides. So they're, they're writing and they're, and they're painting. And, and, and it sort of expands from there, this idea that the heart is the center of all. The problem now continues as the Romans pick up on that and their, their artists did the same thing, which is, you know, that's all well and good, but they also picked up on the, on the mistakes that the Greeks had made and the Greeks had picked up from the ancient Egyptians. And then when Galen, who was a second century um, philosopher and, and, um, and physician, he did a lot of work, a lot of research, and a lot of what he did was wrong because they could not use humans. So, and, and he wrote a lot. And between he and his followers, there were 3 million words written by Galen. And the problem was, and Galen also believed in the four humors and, and bleeding and, and that there was air in the, uh, in the arteries. Um, the, the problem was, is that when Rome fell, Galen's work was not translated into Latin, which was the language of scholarship in the, in the West. It kind of sat. And in the early Middle Ages, it was translated by Syrian Christian scholars. And they put their sort of Christian slant on Galen's work. Galen was a monotheist. He wasn't a Christian. But, 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 but when, the, when, the, when the West finally got around to translating that Arabic translation of Galen's work, into Latin, the church became enamored with it because it had this sort of Christian leaning. So they decided that Galen's words were divinely inspired and that there would be no need to do research or to, to do anything except follow this, the, the word of Galen in a lockstep manner. And that happened, that took place for 1500 years, more or less. So in 1799, George Washington gets a sore throat and they bleed 40% of his blood out in, in, in 24 hours and he dies. If it was 100 years later, 1899, they would have done the same thing only they would have used leeches. So it was, uh, it, it's, it's as if the medical community, for the most part in the West, slammed into a wall. Uh, and it stayed that way until about the 16th, 17th century when they started to slowly move away from Galen. Really, really fascinating. And I guess you learned an awful lot that, that you're generous enough to impart to us through, through doing this work. How long, how long did the work take for this book? Um, I, I usually ask for a year and a half. You know, most books get, you know, contracts are for a year, but, but they're really good about, um, about giving me 18 months. And, and, and I found that that works. I'm, I'm working on another one now, and it, that's due in May. And, and that, that seems to be the number for me. A year and a half. Well, terrific. Congratulations, Bill. Oh, yes. Once again, it is Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. You can't live without this one. Bill Shutt, thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you very much for having me on, brother. It's been a pleasure. Now this. It takes a lot of listening to build a better radio. And that's just what the folks at Sea Crane have done. Bob Crane and his crew, nestled among the rivers and tallest trees in the world in Fortuna, California, have made a habit of listening to their customers. And that's just what they've done in building the CC Skywave SSB, the Swiss Army knife of portable radios. 
For everyday listening to AM or FM in the yard or patio or on the nightstand without having to drain a mobile phone battery, it's a great companion. But it is also a companion equipped for NOAA weather information and alerts that can be life-saving. You can listen to FEMA and Coast Guard transmissions too. Beyond all of that, you can tune into shortwave signals from around the world. It's compact, easy to take with you, and built to last. The CC SkyWave SSB. Click on the link at textonation.com.